Welcome to the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. Hi, this is Ken Blanchard. We need a new leadership model in business today, one that values both people and results, where leaders see their role as serving instead of being served. In this podcast, my friend and colleague, Chad Gordon, interviews experts who help us explore different aspects of leadership. I know you'll be encouraged and inspired by what you hear and you'll walk away with ideas and insights that will help you be the type of leaders others want to follow. Ready to get started? I'll be back at the end of the interview where I'll share what I've learned and how I'll be putting it into action. Now enjoy this installment of the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. I am pleased to introduce our latest guest on the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast, Dr. Brene Brown. Welcome. I'm excited to be with you today, Chad. Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, when I was talking to a lot of people about interviewing you, most of them had no idea that you were once a corporate trainer. How in the world do you go from <laughs> a hotel conference room B to being one of the, the world's leading voices on vulnerability, courage, authenticity, and shame? How did that happen? How did that begin? You know, it's so funny because I, I really live by this philosophy, nothing wasted. And it's, you know, if you look back at my, you know, my past, it's, there's a lot of really disparate dots, but they all kind of make sense to me. And for me, um, I was in school, I was working my way through undergrad, and I got a job, AT&T came to town, mm-hmm. and they needed Spanish-speaking customer service representatives um, who were willing to work, like, really, like, 4 to 1 a.m. or 2 p.m. to 11 p.m., and it was perfect for me with school, and so I, you know, did a quick brush-up on my Spanish and interviewed for the job and got it. And then started working for AT&T in the evenings and at night, you know, gracias por llamar AT&T in Spanish, <laughs> um, which I can tell you <laughs> was not that great. Um, and then I just went through a series of very quick promotions, and one of them was into training and into development. And I, oh, God, I loved it so much. Um, and then I got promoted again. And was offered a position to go into kind of higher level management training, which would necessitate a move to New Jersey, mm. where AT&T was doing most of that work at the time. And I had not finished school yeah. um, because that just, you know, this became much more exciting. Um, so I had a, I had two days, 48 hours to make up my mind. And I came back and I sat down across from my boss. And she looked at me and she said, you're not going to New Jersey. And I said, I'm not. And she said, let me guess. This is what I guess. She said, you're either going to go back to school and be a lawyer or you're going to be a VJ on Headbangers Ball. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you know, I really would. I'd love to be a VJ on Headbangers Ball. Um, but I think the odds are slim. So I'm actually going to go back to school. And and before I even said it, she said, wait, or social worker. You're going to be a social worker. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go back and get my – I think I'm going to get my bachelor's and master's and maybe even a PhD in social work. I love it. Yeah. You, you, it you've got that foundation of, of training and development. And, and, uh, um, but when I think of your work, I think of inner work. I think of self-development. I think of, you know, that, that I wouldn't say gray area, but that outside area of, you know, self, 
care and, and, and improvement. And, um, but it lends itself really well. Uh, you know, we talked before about, you know, you were, you were one of the sessions to be seen at the ATD, the Association for Talent Development International Conference. Are you surprised that, that your message resonates so strongly in the leadership and development field? Um, no, you know, no, because I think, you know, 90% of the work I do now is in big companies working with leaders, either working with, you know, kind of C-suite teams or working with leaders or working with folks in organizational leadership development. So I don't, you know, I'm always grateful that it resonates, but I'm not surprised because, you know, you can't take people professionally where you're not willing to go personally. Mm-hmm. And so because I study vulnerability, courage, empathy, shame, um, you know, these are, these are the issues that we face as leaders. These are the issues, you know, how do you develop brave leaders? How do you, how do you build a culture where courage is rewarded and where, Values about innovation and creativity are not just posters, but they're way they're the way people show up every day. And so, I don't think I'm surprised that there's relevance for the work, um, but I'm always taken aback. You know, I'm always, I guess, I'm more surprised in some ways that people sometimes sometimes people still have a hard time making the leap. I mean, yeah. That's what surprises me. What surprises me is that we still think that we can develop courageous, brave, smart risk-taking leaders um, without giving them a specific skill set around courage. Yeah. Does that make yeah, sense? You, it does. It does. And you, you, you know, you've made your mark. So we talk about courage here a little bit. You really, you made your mark initially around vulnerability and that word. And that's, that's been a buzzword. It's been something where people talk in the workplace about that quite often. And, and in the conference, I heard you say vulnerability is not weakness. It's our most accurate measure of courage. So tell us, you know, what is your, what is your simplistic view on vulnerability and the link to courage and, and how we can, we can show that more often uh, at home, but then more often in the workplace. You know, for me, I've got a very simple definition of vulnerability that emerged from the data. And so at this point, we have close to 200,000 pieces of data. And so as a grounded theory researcher, I'm always, I always develop theories, ideas, and definitions really directly from the, it has to emerge from the data. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not, it's all empirical. It has to be based in people's lived experiences. And so our, my definition of vulnerability is simply risk, uncertainty, and emotional exposure. And so to feel vulnerability is to feel risk, uncertainty, and emotional exposure. And that, you know, that basically defines what leadership is. Um, and so for me, like last week, I spent a couple of days at Fort Bragg working with Special, op- special ops leadership around specifically vulnerability. And I think it's such a great example because I challenged a group of people to give me a single example of courage that they have, you know, either done themselves or witnessed that was not completely defined by vulnerability. Mm. What it, Name a single act of courage that did not require risk, uncertainty, and emotional exposure. And people can't name it because there is no courage without vulnerability. 
you have to be willing to show up and be seen and be all in when you cannot control the outcome. And if you can control the outcome, that's not vulnerability, but it's also not courage. Um, and so for me, a big part of my work has been kind of dispelling those four big myths around vulnerability, that vulnerability is weakness, that vulnerability is letting it all hang out, that somehow we don't need vulnerability, that we can go it alone. Um, you know, these are the myths that get in the way of understanding, you know, no vulnerability. If we, if you, if you are not willing to be vulnerable as a person and you're not willing to, as a leader, try to create a culture that not just tolerates it, but celebrates vulnerability, then you can forget about all the things that are born of vulnerability. Um, and that's not just courage, that's trust, accountability, adaptability to change, ethical decision making, uh, innovation, creativity. And so, I think what my work has done and what this research has done, you know, for me and what I've brought, tried to bring into organizations is to put a different light on some of the, what we feel intractable, intractable problems mm -hmm. are that we face as leaders. You, uh, you've got three books that are all New York Times bestselling books. Congratulations on that. And if, if you're listening to this and you haven't had a chance, uh, you need to pour through there. They're fabulous books, life-changing for many. Um, I liked how you described each of them. You summed them up in a really succinct way that helped me as well to understand, you know, kind of what I read back. The Gift of Imperfection is your first one. You define that as be you. Daring Greatly, the second one, be all in, and your latest, which I want to talk about now, Rising Strong. You say fall, get up, try again. Why now with Rising Strong? Why do you think that message is important and, and uh, needs to be told? You know, well, part of it, really, Chad, for me, was kind of an ethical imperative. You know, Daring Greatly, Daring Greatly was a book that really resonated with people. Um, you know, it's built on the Theodore Roosevelt quote about the man in the arena. It's not the critic who counts. And in this you know, we live in a world right now where there are a million cheap seats, um, where people, you know, people are not brave, yet they anonymously and in, in really hurtful ways criticize and put down other people. And so the book really resonated with people. Um, and we started to get really literally thousands of emails and letters from people saying, you know what, I dared greatly. I tried something new at work. It was a huge failure. I fell, you know, I fell flat on my face. I'm not sure how to get back up and restart. I don't know how to reset. Or, and from personally, you know, I said I love you first. And she broke up with me. And, you know, um, so how do I, how do I reset? And I knew that was going to, I knew those questions were coming and I was already working on that research. And so for me, rising strong is really, you know, I call this the physics of vulnerability. Um, if you're brave enough, often enough, you're going to fall. And so rising strong is what does it take to get back up? And so I went into the research really asking men and women who fall in the service of being brave and get back up and are more tenacious and more brave, 
you know, they're, they're just really even braver as a result of the fall. What do they share in common? And so that's the process I try to illuminate in Rising Strong. You talk about uh, you, you, you've mentioned that Newton's third law of motion, essentially every action has an equal and opposite reaction. How do you manage that from an emotional standpoint, from a um, from a standpoint in the workplace where sometimes, uh, for instance, potential damage of working with someone who um, whose reactions you're fearing because they're unpredictable? How do you manage that in the workplace? Well, you know, I think it's I think it's the, the biggest I think the first thing is you have to understand what's happening in order to manage it. And I think one of the things that people, you know, we've spent so many years dividing work, professional work into soft skills and hard skills and, you know, the gooey stuff and the real stuff. And the thing is that we're emotional beings. And after, you know, 200,000 pieces of data, if you ask me what do transformational leaders share in common like what is that one thread that you've seen with every transformational leader you've worked with whether it was a ceo of a fortune 100 company an elite athlete a a coach a military person what do they share in common i would say they have these three things in common they have an absolute capacity for discomfort they have a keen awareness of their own emotions and their their own emotional landscape and a keen a key awareness of the emotional landscape of other people and how emotion drives behavior in other people and you know i don't think those are soft skills i think those are really tough skills but if you are getting waylaid at work by someone who you know, their, their unpredictable behavior or their constant blaming rather than accountability is really taking a toll on you. What it's going to require to address that is a real understanding of what's happening and how it's affecting you and the ability to have some tough conversations about what behaviors are okay, what's not acceptable, and how you measurably and observably change those behaviors. Um, because if you don't, I mean, you know, to me leadership, a leader is the person who names the unnameable, talks about what no one else is talking about, excavates the hard stuff that's getting in the way of good work, and is brave enough to put it on the table so everyone can look at it and do something with it. And that's that's not easy. Yeah. As you said, you've got to show up every day. And uh, what do you do when you misstep? What do you do, Brene Brown, when you misstep? On this, I can speak with much knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> I, I misstep a lot. Yeah. Um, well, I think one of the proudest moments I've ever had as a leader, because, you know, I went from kind of, you know, I'm still a university professor, but now I have, you know, three companies with, a lot of employees and, you know, lots of layers of leadership. And I think one of the the most valuable, meaningful pieces of feedback I ever received from someone on my team was when they said, man, you are more open to hard feedback than anyone I've ever met. And so I think one of the things I do is I stay really open um, to hearing feedback about my choice. So I'll give you a, a very specific example. There is one part of our business that 
I, you know, I, I frankly, it's, it's a huge challenge for me. I don't love it. Um, I think I see its importance and its importance and its value, but I don't love it. And I don't know if I don't love it because I'm not clear on how to be a good leader there, or it's just not, it feels out of alignment with my purpose. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm still digging into that. But I recently had someone on my leadership team kind of pull me aside and say, your negativity around this piece of our work is really unacceptable in these meetings because there are people who show up every day and bust their butts to do this work. And when it's so clear that you don't have a lot of love for this area of the business, it's pretty devastating for them. And I thought, Oh my God, I needed to hear that. That is so right. That is so, you know, and I could have said, you know, I'm just being human and aren't I allowed, you know, but that's not, that's right. And I think what it does for me is it forces me to, am I avoiding some hard decisions? What am I doing? What do I need to do to change that? Um, is it an attitudinal change or is there really an issue about the time and resources we're spending in this area of the business that may not make sense to me? And am I trying to avoid some hard decisions? And so for me, you know, people pay a lot of lip service to, you know, falling forward and falling fast. Right, and right. I agree with that, except, you know, in, in Rising Strong, I call it gold, gold plating grit. Yeah. Yeah, we need to fall forward and we need to fall fast. But we also have to have the hard conversations about what are you feeling? What's the key learning? What's going to keep what's going to get in the way of us embedding what we learn from this failure? What do we need to dig into that's, that none of us really want to talk about? What is that? What's not speakable right now? Um, and so that's emotional, hard leadership work. Yeah, there's, there's so much to unpack there. I mean, you talk about being open to feedback. So many of us are not, that's not our best in, in, in relationships and in, in the workplace. But one thing that I wanted to talk to you about, uh, um, had one of my big notes is, is, is within the book. You just talked about, um, you know, being honest, but also showing up in a positive manner on something that may not be um, one of your strength areas. But in the book, you talk about, you know, the danger of everything is wonderful, puppies and, and unicorns and rainbows. So how do you how do you make that connection to something that may not be an area that is your strength or something you want to deal with? But also you have to be authentic in how you you do deal with it. So you don't just, you know, sugarcoat everything and, and, and everything's wonderful. So one of our, yeah, it's a really great question. One of our core values is rumbling. And rumbling is the expression we use to talk about normalizing discomfort as a part of brave work. And so what we do here is we'll say, you know, this area of the business, we'll call it the, we'll call it the stamp project. You know, I'm, I'm looking at an envelope that has a stamp on it, but um, <laughs> we'll call it the stamp project. You know, we'll say, you know, let's let's meet on Friday and let's plan to have a, a two hour rumble on the stamp project. And what that means is that everyone is expected to come with a point of view. 
everyone's expected to come listening and everyone is expected to come prepared for some discomfort. And so one of the things I tell leaders all the time is that we have to find a way to normalize discomfort as a part of brave leadership. Um, you know, the little quote, you know, the quote that I say about it all the time is, you know, as brave, you know, as leaders, we have to choose courage or choose comfort, but you can't have both because mm-hmm. courage is not that comfortable. And if you think you're being brave and you're really comfortable, you're probably not being that brave. Um, and so, and I, you know, and sometimes leaders will, you know, kind of fight back and say, well, what if I just make the uncomfortable things comfortable? And I'm like, that's not the point. The point is to normalize discomfort, that some of the work that we're going to be called to do as leaders is going to be uncomfortable. And we need to find a way to be okay with that. We need to find a way to set ground rules about what we do in meetings and what we don't do in meetings. Like if we're having a hard rumble, one of our ground, ground rules in, in here where I, where I work in my companies is that you can call a timeout, always respectful, listen more than you talk, um, and ask questions. Like we are really about spending, you know, three hours in problem identification, which means we probably only need 30 minutes in solution. But that problem identification stuff, I mean, how many times have you been in a meeting where it's like you're in there and you're fighting it out for an hour and then you're like, someone says, so what What exactly is the problem? And like, no one can answer it, myself included. I'm like, I don't even know what we're talking about anymore. <laughs> That's a great example. This podcast is sponsored by the Ken Blanchard Companies. If you'd like to learn more and there's a lot of free resources to better yourself and your organization, go to KenBlanchard.com. You'll find all kinds of free tools and materials to help you and others grow. And they have a special offer right now. Send an email to podcast at KenBlanchard.com with leader chat in the subject line. Now through the end of summer of 2018, one grand prize winner chosen randomly will receive a free one-on-one call with Ken Blanchard. Five others will receive a signed copy of Ken's latest book, Servant Leadership in Action. We're talking with Dr. Brene Brown, her latest book, Rising Strong, The Reckoning, The Rumble, The Revolution. That's uh, her third New York Times bestseller. Let's talk, uh, let's talk about you. Just, you touched on the rumble. Uh, one of the, um, the, the key points uh, that was very eye-opening for me in this book was uh, you know, the one thing that we all do, all of us, all the listeners do when we're in pain, we tell a story to ourselves. Yeah. Talk about that in the workplace. I, I think about the times I've had uncomfortable conversations with my leader and, and, and it, my mind goes in, in all the wrong places. How do you get beyond that, frame it in the right way and move forward? Yeah, it's been, this was like, man, I can't even tell you, this has probably <laughs> saved my life as a leader. I know it has made my marriage. I've been with my husband for close to 30 years. Um, it's changed the, it's really changed my marriage. It's changed the way Steve and I parent our kids. And that is when I started, you know, researching for Rising Strong, um, I, I really got into the neurobiology of kind of, failure, disappointment, heartbreak, setbacks. And what I learned that was the life-changing piece for me is that when something difficult happens, 
Um, you know, people want to believe that we're very rational thinking beings who on, especially at work, who on occasion, you know, have emotions and feelings that we can flick away and get back to our thinking selves. Well, we just know that's not true. I mean, we know that's empirically not true, that when something difficult happens, we are absolutely hijacked by emotion. Hmm. It's our neurobiology. And so what really responds to a difficult situation is emotion. And in fact, what I often say is, you know, when something hard happens, emotion is driving and cognition and behavior are not even sitting shotgun. They're like in the trunk, you know, tied up. And so emotions at the wheel. And so when something difficult happens, maybe it's even, you know, a really offhanded comment, um, a crappy review, um, passive aggressive jab about something, you know, work product or a deliverable, um, a conflict that we got with into someone with someone. Um, what happens neurobiologically for us is our brain, our brain is wired for survival above all else. And so when something difficult happens, our brain needs to understand it so it can protect us. And what we know is that the brain is is hardwired for story. Our brain recognizes the narrative pattern of beginning, middle, and end, and it craves a story that will help it understand what's happening, who's dangerous. I mean, basically, the brain wants to know who's good, who's bad, who's safe, who's dangerous, who's for us, and who's against us. And we all know, rationally, that it's not that simple. Um, but the brain does not like complexity. The brain does not like a bunch of different variables getting in the way of its job protecting us. So what happens is if we give the brain a story, it actually chemically rewards us. So you and I are in a meeting and we walk out and I, I was like, hey, great meeting, Chad. Thanks. And you look at me and you roll your eyes and shrug your shoulders and you just walk to your office. Well, you know, 99% of us listening to this are going to be triggered by that we're like what was that about and so you know the normal thing is we go to our office we start you know we we start we're emotionally hooked our mind is reeling we put the meeting on loop we're trying to figure out what did I do to just really frustrate Chad I must have pissed him off I must have you know I knew he didn't like me I don't think he trusts me he doesn't think I'm a contributor you know this is what we all do because our brain is like give me a story and give me a bad guy give me a good guy I've got to keep you safe So the hard thing is that when I tell my brain, you know what, I really made Chad mad. He's never liked me. He doesn't trust me. When we give the brain a story that's very black and white, the brain literally chemically rewards us and makes us feel better. The problem, this is the rub, that the brain rewards us for our story regardless of its accuracy. It doesn't need an accurate story. It just needs a story that's not wishy-washy with variables. And so what ends up happening behaviorally, you know, in in personal settings and in work is now I'm in my office. You're the bad guy. You don't trust me or like me. You're not very nice. I pick up the phone. I call our colleague, Janet. I'm like, God, what's up with Chad today? And she's like, (laughs) you know, I haven't seen Chad today. I'm like, he just was totally a jerk after the meeting. And then when she sees you in an hour for your one-on-one with her, she comes in all defended, right? Like, oh, man. So this is, how, this is how toxic things go very wrong in organizations very quickly. So what I learned from the Rising Strong process is that there was a sentence that really 
kind of was in my data for the last decade. But when I was interviewing specifically around resilience, this sentence, just every man and woman with the highest level of resilience use some version of this sentence, the story I'm telling myself. And so now imagine a scenario where instead of buying into that thing where you don't like me and I did something wrong, I start thinking, okay, Brene, you know, what's true about what you're making up right now? And what are you making up? Like, what are you telling yourself? And this is kind of where you start rumbling with that story. And so the scenario that this can lead to is, you know, now instead of calling Janet and talking about you and wondering why I made you mad, I knock on your door and say, hey, Chad, do you have a second? You say, sure, come in. I was like, look, we came out of the meeting. I said, have a great day. And you looked really mad. And uh, the story I'm telling myself is something happened in the meeting that really pissed you off. Are we okay? Is there something we need to talk about? And you look at me and go, God, no, I'm really sorry. My phone was blowing up and my daughter forgot her field hockey stick and I've got to run it up to the school and I'm not going to have time to do that. Her mom's traveling. Um, I'm like, oh, my God, I completely get that. The number of swim team goggles I have dropped off in the middle (laughs) of the day. And then when I leave your office, you look at me and more than likely say, thanks for circling back. Thanks for checking in. It, it's so much in in uh, sometimes the wording. It's and it's also uh, very clearly in not hiding from the issue. It's so important at work and relationships because uh, when you let that fester, it can just go out of control. And then, as you the point you make in the book, then if you let it fester two weeks down the road, when I am actually kind of a jerk, um, you you go see there you go that was it I was right he is he was mad at me. Oh yeah, now I've got that thing that's so not helpful that I like to pull out very often in my marriage which is my accounting of every wrongdoing over a long period of time. <laughs> I'm like, and three weeks ago, <laughs> down, and I think that was intentional. And, you know, <laughs> and so, you know, and people are like, okay, seriously, you really expect us to do that? You really expect me to knock on someone's door and say, hey, something feels off. I'm making up that something's wrong. Can we, you know, I'm like, you know, they're like, that's hard. I'm like, you know what that is? That's grown up. It is grown up. You so we've talked a little bit about uh, the the a couple of the pillars. Talk about what to you is the revolution. You know the revolution to me is the revolution to me is really about integration. The revolution is when we you know the whole part about rising strong is all of us have made mistakes. We've all had setbacks, failures, you know, heartbreak disappointment and what people the mythology is that if you pretend like it didn't happen it goes away but the truth is that when you deny a story that story owns you and it dictates your behavior and your thoughts and your emotions and when you own a story you get to write the ending and so the revolution is very much how we work around here Make mistakes, try new things, but the revolution is when things don't go well and you're face down and you get back up, you examine those crazy stories that you're telling yourself because inside those crazy, you know, I call them SFDs, the shitty first draft, inside those, you know, kind of crazy stories are real key learnings about what our fears are, what we're worried about, um, what we think, you know, what can get in the way of us being brave leaders. And then you take that learning and you integrate it. You say, you know what? 
here's what I learned from that situation. Here's how I'm going to do things differently. And most importantly, at least for me as a leader, I expect the people around me to say, and here's how I'm going to embed what I've learned in the culture. So for all of our listeners out there, um, you've given some great examples of some things they can do, and, and you've touched on this in, in some of the other answers, but very clearly, how do we bring curiosity and feedback and seeking info into the workplace? How can we be more deliberate? You know, I think if I think one thing is that it's got to become a culture norm, a cultural norm. It's got to be. You've got to find a way to do some major culture shifting around what's okay, what's not okay. Teaching, you know, this is the thing I'm, you know, one of the things I'm really excited about is that doing all this leadership work over the last five years, the leadership research, doing the work myself with leaders, um, is that courage is teachable. And we didn't think courage was teachable. You know, I think a lot of us believe that it was inherent. And in doing this work, what I learned is it's a skill set. It's a skill set that we can teach, that we can develop in people. It's measurable. It's observable. And so I think we have to invest in developing brave leaders, and we have to develop courageous cultures. And I think that is the work that's in front of us as leaders because courage is the irreducible need for every leader, regardless of what kind of organization you're in, what your metric for success is, what your leadership philosophy and approach is. If you don't have people willing to make brave choices, you can't successfully implement or integrate anything. One of my favorite quotes, I'm not going to read it verbatim because I actually carry my, my paraphrased uh, um, idea of what you've said. And, and it's just the idea of the opposite of scarcity mm. is not abundance. It's being enough. And, and that is so important to me and what I try to accomplish and, and where I, the standard that I hold myself to. What does that mean to you, enough? Yeah, it means everything to me. Um, it means, you know, people... It's funny because people get have really unpredictable res responses to that because people think, well, enough is not enough. You know, I'm looking for excellence, and that's you know, like right, right on. Me too. I'm, 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 you know, I'm a big believer in excellence as well. But excellence is about healthy striving. Excellence is about you know, the striving striving for excellence comes from a place where you spend your energy and your resources and your time pursuing what you believe is your purpose, what's important in alignment with your values. And you're trying to really kick ass and do incredible work in that area. Scarcity is I'm going to hustle and perform and perfect and prove. And I am not that my first priority is not what I believe is important in my life or in my work. It's my first priority is managing what you think about me. So to me, every person that I have found, it goes back to these transformational leaders and, you know, award winning championship coaches and elite athletes and military people that I've interviewed, you know, it goes back to what did they have in common in addition to this emotional understanding of themselves and others and discomfort they 
they lead from a place of believing that they are enough. They do not lead from fear. And when we start leading from fear, which is leading from scarcity, we we create cultures where the big questions everybody asks every day when they get to work um, are, what should be what should I be afraid of today? You know, and whose fault is it? Who's to blame? And that's not that's not courageous. Well, we're just about out of time, and I want to ask you just a couple sure. more questions. So what is one thing, and, and, and you've, you've given us so many beautiful gifts and so many nuggets here, what is the one thing that you hope our listeners are going to take away from the conversation we've had today? That's such a good question. Um, that courage is vulnerability. That courage is the willingness to show up and be seen when you can't control the outcomes. It's the tough conversations. It's, 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 it's the willingness to fall in the service of doing something that you care about. It's beautiful, beautiful words. So you've, you've gotten the trilogy. Uh, yeah. The three books are out. What is next for you? You're, you, you've uh, got a, a very specific area of focus uh, that is that has grown and continued to kind of kind of uh, a fan out into into different areas. What is you know where where's your next focus and where are you throwing your passion and your energy? Where are you afraid to not afraid to fall? Where are you focused? You know, right now I think the big endeavor for us is we just launched Brave Leaders Inc., which is a learning platform that. I talked about courage being a teachable skill set that's measurable and observable. And so it is a platform for teaching courage in, in the context of work and leadership. And so we know that, that courage requires four specific skill sets, the willingness to be vulnerable, clarity of values, trust, and rising skills, some of the skills that you asked me about today that we talked about. Mm-hmm. And so I think what I'm really excited about right now and what I'm, what I'm working on and really pouring my you know, my heart into is how can we bring this work um, not to replace other leadership approaches that people are using or other schools of thought, but how can we bring this into organizations, including schools, including the military? How can we bring this into organizations to really enhance people's courage skills to make more effective the work that they're already doing? And that's, that's really exciting to me because, you know, before Brave Leaders Inc., it was kind of like if I could get there physically, we could do the work. And now this is a way to bring the work kind of globally in a scalable way. And so that's the thing that I'm worth. That's the thing that's worth doing for me, even if it fails, because I just believe in it so wholeheartedly. I love it. I love it. Our listeners will be able to find this podcast and many others at uh, at our uh, blog site, uh, Leader Chat. Dot org leaderchat.org there's a podcast link you can find me on twitter at the chad gordon yes at the chad gordon Brene, where can we find you um you can find me at brenebrown.com and you can find brave leaders inc at braveleadersinc.com i cannot tell you i can't begin to tell you how much i appreciate the time today this has been a thrill to talk to you and and i feel like i just scratched the surface like i could talk to you uh, for for hours and hours, but you gave us so many great nuggets. Thank you so much for taking some time to, to speak with me and, and speak to our listeners today. It was really fun, and I, I'm, I'm very grateful for your thoughtful questions, so thank you for that.
Thank you. And thank you for joining us for today's podcast. If you enjoyed this interview and like to learn more and also help us grow the audience, please subscribe to the Leader Chat podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or wherever you're listening. And please share this with your friends. The best way you can help us grow, though, is feedback. As Ken Blanchard says, feedback is the breakfast of champions. So please write us a review if you haven't already. And by the way, this podcast is sponsored by the Ken Blanchard Companies. If you'd like to learn more, there's even a lot of free resources to better yourself and your organization. Go to KenBlanchard.com. You'll find all kinds of free tools and materials to help you and others grow. Thanks again to our guests for joining us today. For now, I have the pleasure of turning it over to Ken Blanchard for his thoughts on what we discussed. Here it is, your final minute with Ken Blanchard. You know, I'm a big fan of Brene Brown. I mean, I not only listened to her TED Talk, you know, like millions of people did, but this is a fabulous podcast because, you know, my big learning from it is that she says that courage Courageous leaders are really important in organizations, and the key element to being courageous is vulnerability. And I went, whoa, I never thought that those two were associated together. But it's really true because when you're courageous, you're going to take chances, and you might make mistakes and all. And are you open to get feedback, and you open to you know, build on those mistakes and, and do something? And, and she says that we need to move towards vulnerability. If you feel, you know, something, you had a meeting with somebody and, you know, I love where she says, and you think they're upset with you, well, go towards them and say, you know, gee, I got the feeling uh, that you really were upset with the meeting. Is that true? You know, and, and be, listen for the feedback and all. So, wow, is that powerful? Colleen Barrett, you know, who's the president of Southwest Airlines, she had a, a wonderful saying. She said, people admire your skills but they love your vulnerability. And now after listening to Brene, I love vulnerability even more because I know if I want to be courageous, I also have to be open to be vulnerable. So thank you, Brene, you're really special. 